73 in nowadays is very young. Don't worry. This is not a dream job. This is reality. I am an actor. The best word I can say but uh, will describe this was boom. The Premier League is a fraud. Yeah, Nobby Styles. He was football's equivalent to Popeye. Weedy-looking man with glasses and no teeth. And when he walked on that football field, you'd think it was Goliath. It frustrates me. I mean, Martinez lose all. The- I mean, it's like Men in Black is. Have you ever seen the film Men in Black? Coyote Ben Affleck, a young kebab. Ferret head. Very much looks like a ferret, doesn't it? Hello and welcome to the Balls.e football show. That's our football show here on Balls.e, brought to you in association with Ladbrokes. My own name is Gavin Casey and I'm joined by Gavin Cooney. How are you doing, Gav? Sorry, very well. Thank you. Gavinception. Yeah. Uh, I've been waiting a while to, to bring that one out of the back pocket. Coming up on today's show, oh, we'll debate Pygate. Uh, we're master debaters here at Balls.e, uh, as you'll know if you tuned into <laughs> Richie Sadler sure. a couple of weeks ago. Uh, his tale from the 1999 Under-20s World Cup lives on. Uh, we'll also speak today to the director of the new George Best film. Gav, you sat down with him or yeah, you spoke to I him. Yeah, I was lucky enough to meet him at the very posh Marion Hotel on Friday, the morning after the Cami event. Uh, so He was unlucky may, enough to meet you. <laughs> you may notice that uh, my voice is more gravelly than usual, I think, with, uh, with Daniel Gordon. But it was a great chat. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to listening to that back uh the film looks great and we'll also be joined by our own editor mick mccarthy who will come here to weep pain we'll we'll come here to weep yeah in profuse pain uh profound pain at aston villa's current plight Uh, so we'll chat to mick about that you can subscribe to this podcast on itunes by simply searching ball study football show it's also available on soundcloud stitcher libsyn and all good podcast providers our chat with Chris Kamara from last week is currently available. You can get that wherever you like. Uh, it was raucous, and it, he doesn't like Richard Keyes, which bumps him up a couple of echelons in my <laughs> book. pretty great. For sure. Uh, available, too, is our FA Cup podcast with John Aldridge, who sat down with yourself, Gav, I believe. Indeed. Uh, to reflect on some rather compelling FA Cup memories. Uh, we've got a couple of those FA Cup podcasts out at the moment and more on the way. And also, please keep an ear out for our friends in Football Pod, where yours truly sits down with a football figure and their best friend from the beautiful game. So we've had Sky Sports' Graham Hunter, who was mm. brilliant, regaled us with tales of Spain and Spain. <laughs> it was really, really enjoyable. He's a, he's a fascinating man. Uh, we've had Keith Andrews and one of his coaches from, uh, from his youth. Uh, Keith, I'm like... I'm growing more fond of Keith Andrews by the TV3 broadcast. We might get to that in a minute, actually. But uh, I think he's a, he's a great man. Uh, he's also coaching Ireland underage now, which had completely escaped me. But there you go. Uh, that will be out in March. And so, too, will our chat with Pat Nevin and Graham Lasso. We're recording that later today. So looking forward to that. And uh, finally, our other podcasts are available on the Balsley podcast feed. So different feed to this one, but it includes the Hard Shoulder GA podcast, the Irish Boxing Show, and the NFL podcast, which is now finished for the off season. Yeah, uh, and that's it, Gav. That's it. That Can was... we talk about football now? Uh, yeah. Uh, oh my god! What oh a great my game. god! There is when you do, because we, obviously you and I watch a lot of football and. The problem with watching a lot of football is that it's incredibly fucking boring most of the time. I'm starting to think it's actually not a great sport. It's really not. <laughs> I mean, an hour and a half long, and you can go an entire hour and a half period without anyone actually scoring a goal. Which yeah, there's is the an, inherent, an inherent flaw in the sport, in that sense. But because we're bored by it so often, it's profoundly satisfying when you sit down to watch a match, and it turns out to be the greatest thing <sighs> anyone's ever watched. It's just like... I. A general level of contentment spreads across you. It's the highest form of living. And the highest form of living is watching Manchester City 5, Monaco 3 on a Tuesday night on a TV3. You know what I think it as well? spectacular. I think it's because we're so precious, like this generation and this, this era of human history. We're so sort of self-absorbed, uh, yeah, self-absorbed, I guess, self-indulgent that it's like, I have invested my time in this 90 minutes of football yeah. and I have been rewarded for, for that investment, you know? I felt as though I had made a brilliant decision to watch that game last night. I felt vindicated that I wasn't doing anything else. 
That's what a great game does to me now, but it was an amazing game. The officials had a blinder. This is, yeah. Now, there's a great piece on football365.com this morning, which was saying, this is why football needs to be on terrestrial television. Because it wasn't in the UK. It was only on BT, but it was obviously it was on TV3 here. We were kind of lucky to... It was lucky that I'd say the TV audience in Ireland was, in terms of rel- relativism, definitely higher than in England. And in terms of sheer numbers, I'd say the Irish audience wasn't too far off the English one. But in, it was a really good article and made it, uh, all loads of points that I agreed with, which means it's great. Uh, but there was one thing that said, uh, the article said that the referee had a, re- it was a wretched refereeing performance. Yeah. And that's totally wrong. He was the most outstanding ind- individual on the park. He genuinely was. He got like, everything right. And in, he booked everybody, which is great. Meaning that every tackle that flew in, you're like, oh, someone could get sent off here. And he wasn't going to send anyone off, to be fair no, to him. No. But he was going to book everyone. He was leaving it on the precipice, you know. He was uh, introducing a, an element of jeopardy to, to the affair. Uh, I don't even, like, I was wondering, was he a little bit too trigger-happy with yellow cards? But I think it was just the frenetic nature of the game lended itself to players just flying over tackles. And, you know, it was very fast, uh, high-octane, and thoroughly compelling. But, like, even his linesmen had a great game. Like, there was no call last night, right? So, Manchester City felt aggrieved, as fans and clubs tend to do after every single game now with referees. But... And like Pep Guardiola in his press conference after the game refuses to discuss the officials because, uh, in his words, I want to go to Monaco. Yeah. Fair enough, Pep. You know, fair enough. Do do we keep all doing, do. Keep doing you. You know, yeah. I like I like Monaco. It's a it's a nice spot, Monte Carlo. But the point is that that penalty shout that Aguero had, uh, it was not a penalty. No, they like, got a spot the keep, on. The keeper won the ball quite cleanly. I thought, uh, and like yes, you have pundits and co-commentators and commentators going, oh, I think it's a foul. How? No. Like, explain to me, please, how it's a foul when somebody wins the ball before they bring the other player down. It's not a foul. It was a tackle from the front. He won the ball. But I'm starting to think, like, that a lot of people in the broadcasting world just aren't looking at the foot and the ball part of football when they're watching replays because I was incensed last night when I was scrolling through Twitter while watching City to discover that Saul had scored this apparently incredible goal. And I was like, oh, I'm looking forward to seeing that now. So I... Uh, found it on Twitter as you tend to do and it takes a huge deflection that nobody has talked about I actually think I to be honest that. I think we actually did a post about the goal on this website yeah. um, and like it's it's looped over the keeper on the on the back of a deflection you know and like the some of the decisions last night weren't like to me the big decisions last night weren't actually debatable at all uh, the Falco's penalty which he missed it was a clear foul on yeah, Falco. Great decision. Uh, the Aguero thing wasn't a penalty there was a couple more I just thought the officials were spot on the spot real on. winners uh you may complain about the quality of Sal's goal. There can be no complaints about Falcao's goal, which might have been... I tweeted out that it's football's best moment since Robbie Brady's header in Lille. Now, it got a bit of blowback. Uh, Mikey Trainer, who's no longer with us, he will be back next hey, week. rest in peace. Um, Mikey reckons, uh, said it was a ridiculous statement, reckons Ozil's goal against Ludogorets, and there were a couple of other shouts for, uh, oh god, name totally escapes me, uh, Kieran Kilduff against Azed Alkmaar, and Robbie Benson against, Robbie Benson, yeah, uh, against Leggy goal. Warsaw, wasn't it? Leggy Warsaw? Uh, I think it was Leggy Warsaw for Dundalk. It was, yeah. But the Falcao goal was, I mean, it takes a lot, I'm an old man now at this stage, and it takes me. It takes a lot for me to get out of my seat if it's not Irish related. Uh, if I was Screaming. I mean, yeah. Me and my housemates were screaming at Falcao to the extent where our neighbours across the hall knocked on the door to make sure everything was okay. Yeah, I was watching it on TV3 and even like Dave McIntyre and Kevin Kilpan's reaction to the goal was the exact same as yeah. the reaction to my house, which is just kind of like Falcao. Oh! Like both of them having a, a Gary Neville moment, which uh, was magnificent. I like. I didn't even hear it. I only heard it in the in the highlights. Um I mean, you mentioned the great football moments and, and that Falco goal certainly was, but we were plagued by uh, unsavoury scenes at Gander Green Lane Gap in the FA Cup. Yeah. Um, you and I come down on, well, different sides of the fence here when it comes to Wayne Shaw. Yeah. Uh, I hope I never have to say his name again, frankly. Well, hold on. We have, we have a little bit of a sting to give him his proper name. Pie Man. Yeah. Pie Man. As you might better know him. Um, <laughs> you and I had a spat we had a falling out yesterday in the office about this I kind of think why are people complaining so much about a man eating a pie yeah uh, but it's not I mean it's not just a man eating a pie is it that's I think it is what is it to you Gav what does it mean to uh, you it's profound egetry and profound egetry that is actually against the rules so in just in case in case anyone has been living under uh, a Wayne Shaw sized rock over the past couple of days, uh, Wayne Shaw is the 
large reserve yeah, goalkeeper, rotund. rotund, port. He's a portly fellow. Yeah. Uh, with Sutton United, who were playing Arsenal in the FA Cup on Monday night, and he became a bit of a cult hero. Uh, you know, be, mainly because let's face it, he's 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 larger than most reserve goalkeepers that you will see. Big bond, uh, yeah. and he also hoovered the dugouts. I didn't know dugouts ever needed hoovering, um, and he I think he slept on the training ground a couple of times, uh, and then he popped, and then he really doubled down on his cult hero ness. Uh, he popped up to the bar at halftime, uh, and then after Sutton United made three subs, he was pictured on the BBC tucking into a pie on. The substitutes bench. So that's the story, and he became uh, an internet sensation, uh, for want of a better phrase. And things unraveled pretty quickly the following day. He was uh, he was investigated. He's I think he is being investigated by the Gambling Commission and the Football Association over irregular betting. So a betting company which we won't name uh, were offering bets on him eating a pie on the bench, and they were offering those before for the game and. Show did it, and people were wondering, "Oh, is this a publicity stunt? Is he is he going to make a bit of dough out of this?" And um, I'm sorry, yeah. the guy's got iron across, you know. And then I the think he, he went on whatever Piers Morgan's breakfast TV show is. He went on that and said that he was aware of it and wanted to give them a bit of banter, just to kind of squeeze that word out of my throat. It's a hard word oh, to come yeah, out sometimes. That, was, that hurt. Um, so that's the story, and then. It all ended in tears, quite literally. But I think he was crying down the phone when Sutton told him that, yeah, Wayne, we need your resignation. And he tendered his resignation. Uh, I'm not sure what he's resigning from, being Sutton's sub-goalkeeper or whatever. But that's the story. Now, it was a big thing. There was lots of opinion, shall we say, oh, yeah. from cultural tastemakers and columnists and fan, fans online. And you disagree with the fact that it's a matter of debate. Is this correct? Uh, kind of. I don't think it's open to debate as to whether he breached gambling rules. He's admitted he did that, and I think it's, as you said, it is profound egotry. It's stupid behavior. Gobshite behavior, as you might put it, actually, Gav. But that's not where the, like, that's not where people were annoyed initially. Like, people were annoyed initially because, oh, he's just looking for publicity, and he's, like, was it Paul Hayward wrote in the Telegraph that his antics have overshadowed Sutton's FA Cup game against Arsenal? And yeah, they FA have. Run. They mean, have now because we've allowed it to. But like at the time when he wrote that, there you know there was a couple of gifs and videos going around Twitter of a guy eating a pie. I wouldn't say it's as impressive or as effective as Sutton reaching the last sixteen of the FA Cup and playing Arsenal at their home ground. Like if you ask a Sutton fan in twenty years' time. Remember that Arsenal game? They might now say, oh, yeah, that was the day Wayne Shaw ate that pie. Yeah. Or maybe maybe they'll say, yeah, wasn't that a great cup run uh, that we got to the last 16? Uh, you know, one of two non-league teams getting to that stage for the first time since, what, 1915 or something like that. Mm. Uh, maybe they'll remember it more so for their incredible cup run where they dumped out a number of teams and ended up playing against Arsenal. Yeah, but it won't be remembered to. for that now. But will it not? No, of course not. It'll be always be remembered as, oh yeah, that's the that's the game where the guy ate the pie and had to resign. I mean, it even fucking rhymes really well. Yeah. The guy who ate the pie and then had to resign. But do you not feel as though like that? It... That's the headline on it now, and it will be for all eternity. There are certain FA Cup shocks which have been reduced to themes like Liverpool going and visiting Luton Town's plastic pitch and so forth. And Tony Cascarino drawing Exeter against Man United, and this is this is the thing that this will be known for. So if Sutton wanted their place in FA Cup history forever, they've now got it thanks to this Egypt eating a pie. But it's not; they're not. I mean, they're a serious football team in many respects. Uh, they played well to get to where they are. Did they, who did they knock out in the way? Was it was it Brighton? Am I thinking of no? I'm thinking of Lincoln City. Jeez, I, mean, I can't even remember who they knocked out. Because of all this Wayne Shaw stuff, <laughs> offering me a so that's going to be that's going yeah yeah all right well that's your defining memory of Sutton's Cup run. I just kind of think that when it happened and the initial outrage before it had even become apparent that this might have been for a bed and to promote ah but I think a lot of the outrage was about it was about him making it about himself initially you know yeah okay and I uh, actually have pro- I was a bit annoyed by that I have to say I, thought, I mean I'm going to the pub at half time and doing this and doing that eating the pie he was he's going to the pub at half time but like fair enough he's trying hard whatever but like it's a big day you know Make like I think he initially he's thinking I'll make the most of it whatever he might not have thought when it was put to him by this gambling company that <laughs> came into Sutton for the day and now leave them in the fucking in the rear yeah. view mirror 
it, it might have been just put to him, you know, would you mind doing this or whatever? And he goes, yeah, why not? It's going to be a fantastic occasion. We'll have a bit of crack. Like him going to the bar with fans wasn't broadcast on TV, was it? I don't think so. It came up in a but couple of pictures he, But online. he knows that if he does that in this day and age with technology, he knows it'll be broadcast. Oh, but, like, you can say that about anybody doing anything, like... Okay. Can he not just go up to the bar with a couple of fans and enjoy himself for five minutes, no? Not at half-time. Patrice... Do it after the game. Maybe do it before. Don't do it during the game. The manager was not impressed as well, we should no. point out. He, he, he was asked as to whether he believed it was for a bet this pie incident and yeah. he said it, it probably was and we haven't come out of it well I don't think Sutton have come out of it well now at all no of course not sacking him right they, what they find him no not the FA find him 15 grand and uh, apparently he's been suspended for six months yeah and Sutton sack him after taking money from this gambling company in mm. question for raising publicity during their game for the same company that is paying the club that is plastered all around the stadium. Yeah. Like every single billboard. To the point, oh, I didn't know that this company existed until that game on Monday night. So how can you really sack a man for just getting in on a little bit of the action? An, an amateur footballer, you know, I don't know I don't know what age he is. He's probably coming towards the end of his oh, he's 47 average career. You know. He was in a youth team with that But why, what, what's the big deal then? Because he... We broke the rules, firstly. Uh, no, but I'm not talking about that. Like, I, I, can I mean, I don't know how you can ignore it without saying that he, he... I don't know how you can address this without ignoring the fact that he broke rules that are pretty clear. No, but I can accept, I can accept that 100%. But, like, that's, that wouldn't offend... Like, if a man breaks the rules and he's punished, grant. Like, that doesn't offend so me on a is, personal basis. Your problem is the people who were annoyed at him for doing this in the first place. Yeah. Without... The people that were annoyed at this without any knowledge of the gambling aspect of it. Yeah, initially, like. And okay. there was a lot. I don't know. I mean, a lot of people... I mean, a lot of people, maybe they're only cloaking their annoyance at it, cloak their annoyance in terms of the gambling thing. But even so, I mean, it's egetry. It's egetry of the highest order, and it has overshadowed Sutton's Cup run. It will forever be known as the game in which the guy ate the pie and had to resign... And it, and that's it's kind of coloured Sutton's entire FA Cup run and has coloured the efforts of, the efforts of their players. I mean, there's been almost no discussion after since that incident of how you know the gap between Arsenal and Sutton on the field was not that huge. It was two nil, but Sutton were really quite good. I mean, they had a I mean they almost scored from a, they should have scored when a, a guy whose name I don't even know thanks to the exploits of Wayne Shaw, whose name I can't read out of my consciousness, uh, he missed a point blank header and then another guy hit the bar. There's been such little discussion about that and such little discussion about how well Sutton had everything looking for the BBC cameras and what a great event it is. All it's been about is this guy eating the pie. And he knew that. When he's unwrapping a pie in front of the BBC cameras, he knows that Why this did the is BBC cameras cut to him? Oh, they were always going to. Ah, uh, how did they know? How did they know it was going to happen? Well, I mean, now we're into conspiracy theories that may be linked to his resignation. But anyway. Possibly. I, I would be a little bit suspicious about that. Yeah, I, I can I can see where you're coming from, Gav. I just don't think it was as big a deal as Well, I can see where you're coming from, which means I think I've won this debate. I'd probably accept that. I, I, I can't really argue much longer. It's just it didn't upset me as profoundly as, as it did other people. He broke the rules, he got punished. That's about it, really. I don't know why people have to take such personal offence. Moving on. Gav, you spoke with Daniel Gordon. Yeah, director of the new George Best documentary, George Best All by Himself. Uh, Daniel's got a pretty great filmography. He, uh, he directed the ESPN 30 for 30, uh, 9.79 with the asterisk about the, about the sprint race with Carl Lewis and all those lads. And also uh, directed the Hillsborough documentary on ESPN, another 30 for 30 that came out a couple of years ago. Uh, and he also, he's also directed a couple of movies from North Korea. Unfortunately, we didn't get around to that. But we did get to talk about George Best. Uh, so we're going to begin by playing playing the trailer and then you'll hear my chat with the main man you get the feeling that nothing can go wrong you know even if you make a little mistake you know they forgive you he was the best player in the world the legend george best yeah, i'd never seen anything like him just sensational well, he loved to train he loved to play he loved to show off he could turn a game on a dime well, i was born with something and i didn't have to work very hard at it George became the first superstar in football. You got the Rolling Stones, you got all the pop groups, but he was a footballer. David Beckham could say thank you to George. It seemed like it was it was never going to end. It was just getting better and better. This was a great occasion of their lives. They didn't get any bigger than Benfica. The European Cup. Possibly everything had gone too smoothly. I had achieved everything before I was 22. 
I started looking for things to replace the excitement I got from football. George drank every single day for 30 years. It wasn't a slow downhill, it was... You had no real support, if you like. They stopped writing about the football and writing about my private life. And all of a sudden... The whole thing just became a total nightmare. He got frustrated. Most players dread the day when you've got to hang up your boots. I'll go out and commit suicide, I think. When you become addicted, there's no happiness there. I'm my own worst enemy. Sometimes I go a bit beyond my limits. The promise of magic is what George Best always brought. George Best, all the time. It was a time that has never been repeated and will never, ever be repeated. What would you want people to think of you? As long as I remember the football. Because that's what it was all about. George Best, a genius. Hey, that was the trailer from George Best, all by himself. I'm delighted to be joined by the movie's director, Daniel Gordon, sir. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Nice, nice and grey in Dublin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Reminds me of home. Like it bloody always is. <laughs> hey, thanks uh, so much for joining us. I suppose, how did you get involved with the with this project? I was approached by a company in Belfast called Fine Point, who'd been working on it for a year or so um, already in the development side of it. Um, and the question that I asked when anyone you know, approached me, I mean, especially a subject like this, is, well, what, what's, what's going to be different now than has ever been done before, and, and that's the question that I'm always asking in interviews now. You know, what what was what's different about this film, and that was for me the biggest challenge was what what will be different. And to me, immediately it was apparent that you know we'd be going into the archives, deep into the archives, getting footage that you know people had never seen before or hadn't seen since the day it was shot, um, getting George's voice to be a prominent part of the film in interviews that he'd done throughout his life, um, and just tell it uh, on a cinematic level that's a lot you know deeper. Uh, as a story than I think we all thought it was. You know, we, we all think we know the George Best story and I think this this film shows us all that we actually didn't know the story, not not in its entirety. Yeah, uh, we'll dive into a couple of things you said there. Firstly, the archival work, especially around the football, how much fun was that? It, it was great fun the, and the, the remarkable thing was, I'm a massive football fan, I hate Man United, but I'm a massive football fan. Um, and the, um, the, 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 the great thing about going into that, particularly the Match of the Day archives, and this is stuff that you know, was filmed on film in 1964-56 and has never been seen since. It went back in the can, went out on air that night, went back in the can. No YouTube in the 60s, 70s, yeah. 80s, 90s. Um, and the remarkable thing for me was, was hearing the crowd react to George. That was something I didn't quite expect. They, 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 it's an audible... Um, Raw as he gets the ball, there is this anticipation, and people always said, oh, I, I went to watch George Best, or I only went to watch George Best. And, and you think, Oh, is that people with a bit of false memory? Um, but this, this is different, you, you can hear it, and, and also, no matter where it comes in the game, his goal is always greeted with a louder cheer than everyone else's goal. No matter whether it's a 4 0 and he scored the fourth, or it's 2 1 and he scored the winner a minute from the end. His is always the loudest cheer. It, it, it's quite. It was quite a discovery going into the. Mm. And especially as a football fan and an archive fan as well, it was, a, it was an amazing journey to take. Yeah, you talk about making it a bit more cinematic. Could you expand on that? How do you make a documentary more cinematic as opposed to a televisual? In television, you've always got this problem of time, and, and you've always got. You know, we must get it into fifty-nine minutes, and you must tell the audience exactly what they're seeing already, and that there's no time to sort of sit back and and actually take it all in because the pressures on a TV programme, you know, you, you've got your remote control and anything, your phone can go off or the doorbell can go or your kids come in and interrupt it. There's no concentration span. So people think that the response for that for TV is to try and keep everyone engaged as long as possible. There's always a narrator and, you know, the, the programme doesn't tell itself. Uh, and that's the big difference in the cinema. You, you, you sat down, you hopefully have got your phone switched off um, you know, you, you've got no interruptions, there's no remote control, you're there. And then it becomes an experience and the, the job of, a, of any filmmaker, and particularly in documentaries, is to keep you in the story, deep in the story. So there's a slightly, you know, aesthetically you're filming in a slightly different way to how you film on, on TV, but, but it, it's this, the, the core things to keep people interested. So there's no narration, which makes it really hard to tell the story without a narrator because you haven't got an easy shortcut of a narrator to link you between scenes. Um, and so 
what what you do is you you get your protagonist, the people you interview, to tell you the story as you go, and that that's that's an art in itself. And that's you know, I've got an incredible editor called Andy Warboys who made my Hillsborough film as well, and you know it's it, that is is just a, a real skill that that's really hard to perfect, and that's why it takes time in the edit to, to make the film. Yeah, I mean, that's, it seems like a really basic question that I'm going to ask, but like, how much, how many hours of footage is left on the cutting room loads, floor? Loads. I mean, I, I, I went, in my early career, I, I, did, I used to calculate, it was about 100 to 1, you, you shoot, your shooting ratio is 100, 150 to 1, so for every hour on there, you've, you've shot okay. 100 or 150, whatever it might be, and I think in this case, including the archive, it's, it's 100, 150 to 1, so there is... There's an awful lot. Luckily, it's not film reel anymore. Um, that's all left on the cutting room floor. But but there is that. There's this, uh, and there were you know you film characters and, and you do interviews with people that you you hope will bring out this part of George or that part of George. And in the end, for whatever reason, it's never their fault. Uh, they they leave the story as it were, uh, and then you have to you know to, to pick the phone up and say, I'm really sorry, you didn't make the cut. Um, it's like telling them they're going, they're going to be a sub on Saturday. Oh really? Um, you, you, yeah, you, you would you, ring up and say. At and the like very did, end, has yeah, any, yeah. Did anyone like object? Be like, oh, no, I mean, no, 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 no. I mean, it's it's you you want to because people have given up their time, um, and and in this in this uh, case as well, you know, they're, they're sharing memories and, and they're sharing, um, you know, happy times and sad times that are making them making you reflect. So it's not a decision to drop someone. You you never take that lightly. Yeah. Um, but you, you you have to always focus on on the film. What's what's driving the film forward? Yeah. And to move away from the cinematic and maybe just in terms of the content of it. What it does really well, I think, is that it shows the other side to best, that there's sometimes you can get caught up in the football bubble and the, the kind of narrative of this great, flawed genius that hurt himself, but he hurt a hell of a lot of other people. He did, he did. And I didn't want to make a film that was only about football and how great he was. And also, I didn't want to make a film that's only about his unravelling and, and, and what he did to himself and to others. And that was, you can't have the... The George Best story without telling both of those and, and tell them you know deeply and well. So for me, that was the the, the critical thing to, to to show how and why he unravelled. And it's you know again, most people say very glibly, oh, he's fil- football's first pop superstar, mm. and he was. But then when you see the pictures of what he faced as the first one to ever face paparazzi camping outside his house, being hounded wherever he went, um, you know that the. the it must have been amazing for him to get that that press and adulation after the Benfica game in '66, and and also after '68 as mm. well. It must have been amazing for him, and get all the girls just throwing themselves at him. Brilliant, but then he doesn't want that anymore. Very quickly, he doesn't want it anymore. It's too late, and and he had no idea that, that was what happens. Oh, so you think his his giving up football was almost trying to give up the fame? Is that fair to say? I, I think in his mind. When he gave it the football the first time, when he goes off to, he went off to Mallorca in '72, and he was 25, about to turn 26, um, and he quit there and then. And in the interviews that he gives, and we, we've got the archive of it in the film, it's a cry for help. It's actually he's depressed and and he's he's got problems. And these days, the footballer would be shipped straight to the priory, and that would be the end of it. And he'd be dealt with, uh, and there was none of that then. So um, I, I think that the for for George, it was this. Um, the, the, the giving up the football he always he sort of said he wanted to give it the fame I'm not convinced he, he really did I just think he wanted to sort out what was going on in his head and I think he always thought that well just quit and that'll be fine but actually he was probably more famous after he finished in entirely than when he was you know people still yeah. came up to him afterwards wanting his autograph and you know you're talking a man in his 50s that was in his prime in his early 20s who's still got kids coming up to asking for autographs, still got old people coming saying, I saw you play. And yeah. he, he had this effect on people right to his dying day. Um, so the, the fame actually never stopped for him. Okay. I think he had to learn how to deal with it. He was so open about it as well, like this amazing footage in Mallorca, like Huddler, this journalist huddled around him asking questions, and he's just saying, mentally, I'm a mess. I'm yeah. all over the place. Yeah. It's extraordinary. It, it is. And, and the extraordinary thing for me, from a place like today, where we recognise a lot more of it, was that no one recognised it at the time. Yeah. No one was there to see, actually, he's depressed. And what everyone saw, in, in a very old-fashioned way, um, was, oh, come on, you're a footballer, you've got loads of money, you know, you, you, you should be happy, you've got birds throwing yeah. themselves at you, why aren't you happy? And, of course, it's so much deeper than that for someone like him. Um, 
and harder for someone like him. And, and I've never I've never suffered with what he suffered with. Um, so I can't fully understand what he was going through, but I can see now through a 2017 lens of what he's going through. But he was his in that way. He was also his own worst enemy. But he didn't have he didn't have anything around him. He had no protection. You won't get to Messi mm. on on his holiday or Ronaldo on his holiday that easily. Um, you might occasionally nab a selfie if you happen to be staying in the same hotel. Mm. That's it. Yeah. You wouldn't ever get a press call just turning up on mass. And they did it with George throughout his life as well. It wasn't the only time. Yeah. One of the best things about the film is the testimony by his former wives and girlfriends, so Jackie Glass and Alex Best and Angie Best. Would you have made the movie without their contributions? No, no, that was critical for me. The Having the women, we originally had a list of seven or eight women um, throughout his life. And, I, and, and when we interviewed those three, we kind of knew that we had the core of it. We, we, we were still trying to get others, but they then, as we cut the film, they then didn't quite quite work anyway if we would have added any more they were critical the women were absolutely critical and these aren't women that had one night stands with him mm. these are women that, that stayed with him lived with him saw him felt his character um, you know it was a, a, a big yeah it was a big thing for them and, and that it was amazing as well with the uh, the passage of time especially since the funeral that you know Angie and, and Alex were in a place where they could talk again about yeah. it um, and Jackie never she she she's now a, a Buddhist monk in uh, in Edinburgh and came in her robes yeah. you know with a shaved head and it's very striking on camera um, and in person yeah. and and you kind of like you know I've, all I'd ever seen was the photos of the two of them together in the 60s um, looking like a, you know the posh and becks of their day um, and she was amazing she was so open with what they did back then you know and she wasn't being preachy as, as a, a now monk you know yeah. it's a she, she's an amazing woman, and, and and I found the testimony from Angie was just a, you know brilliant, brilliant to hear, uh, and great to edit with as well. Oh yeah, it's, that story. It's a, dream. it's a dream to get a character like that, and the story that opens the film yeah. is, is a classic story. And if you know the George Best story really, really, really well, you have heard that story. But the way it's told is slightly different. Um, the, the, and just, just for people who are aware, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's 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 a great thing to to not describe what, what I'm talking <laughs> about. Um, but the, um, the 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 story is when when Angie's uh, they're in San Jose. He's an absolute wreck, George Best. By then, he's he's drinking really heavily. But Angie's got Callum, he's one year old, in the back of the car, and she's driving along, and and she sees it's raining, which for San Jose is really there's like three days a year when it yeah. rains. And it's raining, and she, you know, windscreen wipes it going, and, and and she feels it's like a movie, and she sees this tramp walking in the middle of the road towards her, you know, bedraggled, soaking wet, and she f- feels really sorry for this tramp, and as she drives past, she realizes that's my husband, and then she realizes it's over, you know, she's done, and that's it, and she just she drives on, she talks the baby to the doctor, then that's it, that's the end, that's the end of them, and that opens the film, and in that story you're told so much about George Best. And, and again, going back to the film, that it would be easy to open the film with a great montage of George Best being a great footballer. But actually, that's the story that you want to tell, not, not the football, the, the story of, of him as a person. What I also really liked is how the idea of addiction was treated, because I think it was Hugh McIlvany, I'm open to correction on that, that says that George was addicted to football. Correct. And where you assume, yeah, he liked football, but he was addicted to alcohol... Angie took an interesting position on that. Now, I'm not sure how many people would agree with it, but she says that alcoholism and drinking, having a drink every day, it's a choice. Yeah. Could you maybe comment yeah. on and how she, that's... I mean, I, I found that, the, the, again, the, the more that we were researching, the more we were interviewing people, the more it became clear that it was a story of addiction as well, and that he is addicted to football at the very beginning. And that's like, for us, that's a beautiful addiction to have, you mm. know. What, what better addiction to have but he, he has that personality so he's there he trains he loves it he gets high from it it's, it's a great feeling but that actually has a problem because in 68 he reaches the peak of that and he can never get that high again yeah. so for someone with addictions he's now looking or addictive personality he's now looking for other things which becomes women which becomes booze and that you know completely um, yeah messes him up in, in, in every single way uh, Angie made made the choice and uh, made the the um, the statement that alcoholism is a choice, you have a choice not to drink that day. Um, and you know, other people in the film say well, it's an illness. We didn't understand that alcoholism is an illness and is a disease. Um, and I know that there are different, there's different opinions in the medical world as well about you know, the, 
is it a choice thing or is it a, an illness? And I know it's treated as an illness more now. But I felt that it, you know she's lived with an alcoholic, and her voice you know deserves to be heard. It doesn't matter whether I agree with that or not, and, and it opens that that debate up um, as to whether it is a, a genuine choice or whether it's a disease that it needs treating like an illness does. And then just in his final days, I mean, there was a picture of George Best on his deathbed splashed across the front of tabloid papers. Yeah, very tasteful. Yeah, <laughs> but you were, you were consciously, we want to tackle that in the movie? Was that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and the thing that, that shocks me, I mean, we have the, the, the agent at the time who took the photo, who bitterly regrets taking the photo, right. um, but, but also admitting that he, you know, they did it for money because that's kind of what they always did with George when it was a bit short of cash they'd, they'd do something for money but he had a contract with the News of the World um, at the time to tell his story when he got out of hospital obviously he never got out of hospital um, and part of that George wanted this apparently wanted this photo to, to show the world what, what drinking does to people um, the saddest thing for me isn't necessarily that backstory, but that you look at that face and then you remember the the sort of childlike genius that was playing for Man United in the 60s and you compare it's not that long in between in terms of years um, and I, I just find that that's a really really sad moment in the film Did you have any opinions or ideas about George Best coming into the movie that, you, that were changed come the end of the process? I came fairly open to the process and you know I had a I, I was a uh, you know I, I loved you know all the things I watched as a kid I never saw him play but all the things I watched as a kid of all those great moments mm-hmm. I'm a Chef Wednesday fan so I love the goal he scores against Sheffield United it's brilliant um, <laughs> you know and I, 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 I loved him he's a you know he's a maverick player and he's something that you as a little kid playing football that's one of those heroes that you have um, and I didn't quite understand the alcoholism or the you know the, the bad side or the yeah. dark side of him so I came fairly open what I was able to get from making the film was a much deeper level of understanding of of George Best and what happened to him, um, and I felt that, that that level of depth had to be told to, to justify the film. Yeah. Can we move on and talk about some of your other credits? Mm. You directed that superb documentary about Hillsborough uh, that was a thirty for thirty, yeah. as far as I know, yeah. went out in ESPN. I'm just wondering if you have an opinion on Liverpool, the football club, decided to ban the Sun mm. newspaper only like two weeks ago. Yeah. Like so many years after the event. Do you have an opinion on that? Are they right or wrong? Or? Uh, I mean, I, I, I sort of say, why wasn't it done earlier, to be honest? Um, there's been a long campaign uh, from the, the very beginning uh, against The Sun in terms of what they did. They've, they've never truly apologised for what they did. Um, you know, they, when they did apologise, it's, it's, not, it's not right. When the verdict came, I think I'm correct, The Sun didn't carry it on the front page. The, um, and the, neither, the, neither the, did the, the Times, times actually, yeah. The Times then corrected it, I think, with a picture later, yeah. after their own journalists objected. So I think you know where, uh, where their opinions and their apologies lie. So, mm. you know, uh, there's, there's no way that I would um, criticise that. Um, I think it's absolutely right. The, 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 the thing that people need to remember as well, the story that they the truth, in inverted commas, that The Sun used, that story went in nearly every newspaper. Um, on or around the, the sort of 19th of April um, and the sun you know as they would do especially at that time um, the, the sun went one step further and, and turned it into a horrific um, headline but an awful lot of, of newspapers can hang their heads in shame for the coverage of Hillsborough at that time as has been proved since but they've kind of you know the, the, the sun is, is um, you know particularly bad and they, they've been targeted mm. um, but you still can't you know you can buy the sun in Liverpool, but no one buys it. So it's you know they, they've kind of like put it out to pasture in uh, in Liverpool. And with the documentary itself, was that commissioned by ESPN with a view of telling this story to America, or was it almost as like commissioned almost for a British audience mm. to take a good look here? Guys? I want to tell the Hillsborough story from about two thousand seven eight. I approached the BBC initially with a view to it being for the twentieth anniversary. And they had the opinion that, well, what's, what's new to say, which hasn't been said before. And, and I would have tried to make a very similar film to the one I made, but it would have been impossible, actually. And, and certainly I would never have got it through lawyers because everything that I said in 2014 couldn't be said in 2009. Yeah. Um, so not legally, couldn't have been said. I'd have yeah. been uh, chucked, chucked out in court. Um, 
and uh, in 2012 when I did the a film 979, 9.79, which was the Ben Johnson, Carl Lewis film, that was a 30 for 30. We were discussing with ESPN what they wanted to do next um, during the course of the filming of, of that, that um, 979. And um, they, uh, they said, ESPN said, we've, we've always wanted to make the Hillsborough story. And, and I was like, well, I'm, I'm your man to make it, Chef Wednesday fan. You know, I've written about the disaster. I've wrote, wrote a book about Chef Wednesday, and there's a chapter on Hillsborough. Um, and, and I really want to make it. And in order to make it, we had to get ESPN and the BBC on board, because BBC had all the footage. Um, but for the Americans, they, they had wanted to tell that story for a long time, but hadn't found the right director to make it. They'd always had American directors approach them about the story, and they felt that wasn't right. Um, so I guess I mean you know, I, I sort of looked out in terms of, of getting them to, to understand what I was trying to make and the BBC came on as well. We were embargoed for two years in the UK because yeah. of and, and we also voluntarily extended that embargo to Europe. Um, so it couldn't be seen. It was it was shown actually in November in Amsterdam, um, at the film festival there. And um, so yeah, it was it had it had a massive impact in America in twenty fourteen and then we had to wait for the verdict. And then once the verdict came out there's you know, the BBC one ended up being over two hours long to include that whole process. Yeah, uh, And then in terms of what's next, Dan? Uh, I've just done four films in a year, and you, you suppose the, the, the medical rule is only do one a year, <laughs> and uh, I've just released four. So I'm actually just taking a little bit of time out in terms of um, just looking at ideas at the moment, which is really rare. It's been like nine or ten years since I've last done that. Because um, it's been one thing after another, yeah. after another, after another, and I, I did the fall as well last year, which was the Mary Decker and Zola Bud film yeah. um, for Sky Atlantic. So it's one of those like release, release the best film. It's going out on, I mean, it's going out nationwide next week, which is brilliant, um, and in in Ireland as well, all of Ireland. Um, and then yeah, just sort of see your kids, remember who they are. <laughs> uh, they can maybe remember who I am. Try and get to more Wednesday matches, uh, yeah. all, all that kind of stuff that, that you can do when you're not in the middle of anything. It must be incredibly exciting to read something and be like. I can make a movie about that. Hmm. Like yeah, that it's great. It's, it's a brilliant. It, it, for, for me, it's you know, for me, it's the best job in the world. Yeah. Like, you know, you and and you know, you go around the world and you meet so many interesting people. And I've been fortunate enough to to interview an awful lot of you know elite sports stars and elite football players. And um, they're not normally the most interesting. The most interesting actually the normal, ordinary people yeah. that we that in some of my films have been caught up in some extraordinary moments and then gone back to what they were before. You know, and, and then I'm, I come along sort of twenty, thirty years. To remind them of the bad old days, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, it's it's, it's something that I, I I love doing. I love love meeting people, love talking to people, um, and then you know, once we've got that on record, going back into an edit and then working with them. And the weirdest thing is doing an interview with someone, which maybe takes two hours of their life. Um, and then I live with that for the next year, year and a half, and I'm watching them every day. And certain phrases and mannerisms that they only ever did once while we were filming, I see them over and over yeah. again. So the next time I meet them, which may be two years later, I've still got that initial <laughs> memory of them completely. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's just, it's an incredible, it's a really weird thing. You think you know someone so well, but actually they've just been on your, on your box for, uh, for the last year that you've been editing yeah. with them. So yeah, it's, it's a really weird, 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 weird concept. Well, Dan, it was a pleasure to have you on our podcast, to change the phraseology there a small bit. Thanks so much for your time. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. So that was my chat with Daniel. I should mention that George Best, all by himself, is released in cinemas this Friday. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, I'm really So run along to it. it. I do recommend it really highly. It's great. Yeah. Uh, like uh, The trailer looks absolutely amazing. It's time now for our Ladbrokes Bet of the Week. At Ladbrokes, if one team lets you down on your ACA of five teams or more, you'll get your money back as a free bet up to €25. Euro. Ladbrokes, online, mobile and in-shop. 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. Dunlouis.net. Yeah, our sponsors, Ladbrokes, are giving us double odds on the following games this weekend. On Saturday, Leeds, United versus Sheffield Wednesday. Also on Saturday, Watford versus West Ham. On Sunday, Spurs versus Stoke and the League Cup final between Manchester United and Southampton. And on Monday, Leicester at home to Liverpool. Gav, you've got a better week? Yeah, David Kento can't let us down again last God week. God damn it, Kento! Uh, he's really letting us down. It's twice he's, he's been given the big opportunity to get a better week right and he didn't. He went for Millwall to beat Leicester. They did that bit, uh, but he also decided that both teams were going to score, which... 
Only one of them did. Yeah. So no real surprise that Leicester are yet to score a goal in 2017, by the way. League goal, anyway. Yeah, they scored in the FA Cup replay against somebody from the Championship. Uh, so the I picked the bet of the week sorry. this week. I'm going for Premier League double, and it, they're both games that kick off at 3 o'clock on a Saturday. Everton play Sunderland, and West Brom play Bournemouth. So I'm going to go for a West Brom and Everton double. Uh, ooh, that's, what, what sort of odds are we talking about? Okay, I forgot to look at the odds, but if you give me a minute, I'll do it now. Sure. Well, West we Brom at evens at home, Everton two to five. So, this the when combined, are, the odds are enormous: one point seven nine to one. Well, that's your so yeah. It's slightly better than evens. Uh, so lump on everything you have on that. It's Absolutely. I, I'm probably going to go with the double odds from some of the other games instead, maybe. But I um, appreciate the effort. Uh, look, we just need to get back in the uh, another we just w need to win, in the column. You know? Back in the win column. Yeah. Uh, like this, this is uh, for charity ultimately. So we need to get our acts together. Um, it's. I'm trying to put this off. Going to Mick, our, our editor, Mick McCarthy, because it's going to be very, very sad. Oh, uh, yeah. Nobody's really looking forward to this. Not least Mick himself. He's waiting outside the studio here. Uh, makes a massive Aston Villa fan. They find themselves languishing in 17th position in the championship at the moment where a season seemed to have sort of rectified itself halfway through and it looked like they were going to head back up to the Premier League and now they're battling relegation in the championship. Uh, so without further ado, we better introduce Mick McCarthy. Get double the odds on first goal scorer with Ladbrokes. That's right, if you're winning first goal scorer scores in the opening 20 minutes of selected live matches, then Ladbrokes will double the odds. Available in Ladbrook shops nationwide. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. Dunlewy.net. Uh, Mick, Aston Villa, Aaron Dyer Straits. What's the story there? Dyer. It's a lot of fun, actually, uh, being a Villa fan oh, in really? the Championship for the first time ever. Well, I thought that at the start of the season, actually, because even though they were struggling a little bit before Bruce came in, it was like, oh, there's actually a little bit of a tension on. And, you know, we're on telly more often because Sky get ratings, apparently, from Villa games in the Championship, yeah. even though they're in the Premier League. And they've just been this kind of, like, forgotten club for so long. And even our relegation season, are like, so we finally get relegated for the first time in Premier League history, and they're so bad that it's not even a story. They're gone by yeah. Christmas, you know? So there's no attention ever on Villa, and suddenly it's like, oh, they've got the big game in the Championship against Forest and Leeds and Ipswich and Newcastle and everything. So it was a bit of fun, and it was a bit different. But then Christmas happened and everything's just falling apart. And now I'm really worried about going into League One. What happened at Christmas? Because uh, Villa spent a stack of money. I mean, they bought Scott Hogan. They bought Conor they've brought in. They've brought in 19 players. 19 yeah. new players since August. Yeah. Like, that's nearly two starting elections. Yeah. You can't. Like, the money they've spent, right? So they brought in Ross McCormick for $12 million. Um, This guy, uh, Kojia, for eleven who's now playing on the wing, even though he's there. He's got 11 goals this season. The next highest scorer has four and is a Middlesbrough player. Kojia had his, his uh, run-in with Paul McGrath as well on, on Twitter that time. Yeah. Where McGrath criticised him for not being a team player. And McGrath subsequently apologised for criticising him for not being a team player before Kojia himself responded going, no, you don't need to apologise for anything. Uh, you're a god and whatnot. Uh, like so, McGrath has now had two goals at Villa and both apologised both times immediately. He needs to stop apologising, frankly. <laughs> yeah, uh, like Villa fans are behind Paul McGrath. Let's face it; they've, he's done more for that club than anyone that's currently there. So, are Villa fans still behind Steve Bruce? Because I remember there was this story from oh, let's check the date on. I think it was yeah, it was January twenty first. We had it on the site about Ross McCormick not turning up to training, and it was because of his wall. Uh, he just didn't bother turning up, and he said it was because the electric gates in his house had failed. So Steve Bruce wasn't having any of that. Uh, so a proper football man went over to his house, took a picture of the four-foot wall, which he refused to scale to get a taxi to training. Uh, it was just a like, load. And then Bruce was heroically beating his chest in a post-game interview, saying there's been too much indiscipline at this club for way too long. So I remember getting reading the feedback to this article, and there was lots of Villa fans saying, Oh, well, fair play, Steve Bruce. We finally have a guy who understands it. And he's hardly won a game since. They haven't won, he a, hasn't game won since. a game since. Do you want another uh, 2017 record? Yeah, go on. I'll read out the results. Yeah, go. Okay. Cardiff won, Villain nil. Spurs 2, Villain nil. Wolves 1, Villain nil. <laughs> Villa 2, Preston 2. That was a pretty good result. Uh, Brentford 3, Villain nil. Forest 2, Villa 1. Villa nil, Ipswich won. Ipswich, by the way, who couldn't 
Mick McCarthy was going to get sacked before they kept the Villa Park. <laughs> Villa 1, Barnsley 3, Newcastle 2, Villa 0. That's uh, nine games, five goals, conceded 17, lost eight, drew one. Oh, my God. Uh, so, yeah, that is not good form. Uh, <laughs> the Newcastle game on Monday night, I was watching it, was just this horrendous display of everything that could go wrong. Like Bruce was saying, like every mistake we're, we're making is being punished. But, like, one of the goals, the first goal was incredibly scrappy and bad defending and just, like, this, like, not ruthless enough to just get rid of the ball. And then the second one is, like, this, like, Heather that goes past the guy in the line, hits the post, hits him on the ankle and goes in. I saw that. You know, it's it that. absolutely <laughs> dire. And, and then, like, e- even even later on in the game, then it's like there's the guy straight through and goal, one-on-one with the keeper, hits it straight into the keeper's chest. Like, there's, it's just terrible. Like, they're just, so, they're just dead. There doesn't seem to be anything. The fans, like, you're asking if they support Bruce. Mm. There was a bit, actually, like, after the Barnsley game, you lose 3-1 at home to Barnsley, you lose two home games in a week to two poor teams. Uh, well, maybe Barnsley aren't poor, but I suppose Villa would always think they should beat Barnsley. And they'd also just sign their best player. <laughs> they just yeah. sign one of their best players, yeah, in Horan. Uh, so that happens, and then there was a lot of kind of, like, how long are we going to give this guy? Maybe it's time for another change. But that seems to have calmed down a little bit. Uh, the funniest thing going on at the moment, basically, is the owner, though. Yeah, like, his Twitter feed is... I mean, I've I've got his Twitter feed. There is, open there is a comparison to be made about other leaders' overly frequent use of Twitter. I mean, there was, <laughs> Perhaps there there was one utterly mental use of a meme that I assume that uh, the villa owner is a Tony Jaya. I'm not sure how to I pronounce think it's it. Jaya, yeah. Uh, Jaya. He, he tweeted a picture the <laughs> the movie poster from the Expendables two. Yes, which <laughs> I mean, not even the most uh, recent Expendables. No, and how did he misinterpret it? It's a it's a load of lads beside their sell by date doing something for money in which they have no interest in, and they're literally expendable. That's their that's their whole shtick. Yeah, the, the the title of the film is actually meant to be ironic. You know, <laughs> uh, he's having a difficult time. I don't think an, an owner of a club is the size of Villa can afford to be ironic on Twitter when he's six points clear of the relegation. I don't think he was trying to be ironic either. We spoke with um, Andy Townsend there yesterday. He's uh, going to be on one of our FA Cup podcasts that are coming up soon one of the next few rounds obviously kind of has a massive history with Aston Villa and he was saying that he absolutely fervently believes Steve Bruce is the right man not only the right man he said but the perfect man to turn the ship around the problem he said was that Villa now are like an Arctic lorry in reverse and that it's going to take a long time and an arduous process just to turn it around and it's going to move very slowly as well when it does happen but he was talking about how the players themselves, having been in dressing rooms, like he was saying that when you're on a run like this, particularly at a club like Villa, you're at a big club or you're in a league which is doing you as a player no favours, that having lost so many consecutive games, you just start looking out for yourself. And it's like, look, I have to get myself in a shop window here. I have to try and perform to the best of my ability. So it's not necessarily that the players aren't trying, it's that they're trying as individuals and not as a team because that team bond just evaporates when a load of lads who... I mean, if you're talking about expendables, like you look at some of the players that have joined Villa, like it's a quick in and out for them. You know, mm. uh, It's all championship players. So they bought... like So obviously McCormick's already gone back to the championship. Uh, K- uh, Kajia was from Bristol City. Hogan from Brentford. Uh, Horahan from Barnsley. And then you have like Yedinik from Palace. And... Yeah. Chester from West Brom like not exactly top class Premier League players either you know so they're all just like it's just trying to be the buy buy the best club in the championship but a lot of for a lot of those players it's like you join Villa because you think this is my shot to get into the Premier League like that's why with Villa though yeah with Villa yeah. is what I mean so like how would have joined them thinking well look yeah. I'm not going to uh, earn promotion with Barnsley I might get there with Villa but when you f- find yourself in 17th or wherever they are it's like, well, that didn't go to plan, so I just need to keep myself active and keep myself in form. And if yeah. this doesn't rectify itself, at least I will be in demand. So yeah. there's that- no po- there's no point in really panicking though, because I don't think I don't think they really thought after the first few months when Bruce came in that they were going to get promoted anyway this year. I think they will not get relegated, and you know the players are betting in, and they did get rid of a lot of players in January as well. So for all the talk of spending, they got rid of uh, Jordan Ayew. Uh, Jested, 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 
I never really yeah, learned. He's gone to a bit Sissoku, of a Ashley Westwood, who's actually been a bit of a loss yeah. to the team. Uh, he went to Burnley. So there's like, you know, there was a bit, there was a lot of coming and going. The thing with Villa, though, is that it's all, it, it feels like there's just like this toxic atmosphere at the club for a few years. Yeah. That it's, you know, as soon as, uh, you know, Benteke or even going back to like Ashley Young, as soon as they're like good enough, they'll be gone. First chance they get. Everybody else is just at this like, boring stand it's like when they signed Kieran Richardson and Joe Cole a couple of years ago and you're just sort of going oh god is this the club we are now you know it's just there's, there's no ambition just get in these like 32 year old guys who've been around the block and have no ambition left themselves uh so you know what have the fans got to cheer they went down with like zero fanfare last year as I mentioned and it's funny, I'm reading like a really crappy James Chester interview um, on Monday before the Newcastle game, and he's talking about how, you know, there's been a bad atmosphere at the club, but, you know, the fans have a right to have to, to have a go at us. And, you know, we, we had this mentality that we were afraid to criticise each other because people would take it personally, and that's all gone now, you know. But I feel like I've heard all that kind of crap before, and I say it in person, but it seems like that is exactly the problem, and they're never going to, like what Townsend's talking about, they're just with this negative momentum, yeah. and they can't change it. And it does feel like everybody's really touchy. And if you say anything about a Villa player, or like you say Ross McCormick, didn't bother to turn up the training four times in a year or something like that, and he goes, oh, I've been treated really badly by my manager. Like, I'm kind of glad Bruce got him out, you know? Ah, mm. uh, McCormick's a dickhead. Uh, like, there's no doubt about that. If do you, you want to hear something, some Tony Jaya tweets? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so here's the best one. I just re- I read this article before I came in. He retweets somebody saying that this is a really good article by, like, some fan site who basically just lay out what's happening with Villa and saying that they're buying a lot of players, um, they're buying the best of the championship, and it's not really working. It doesn't really say any more than that. He goes, Felt insulted one. Space, comma, para pound sign, even can't cover half wages, semicolon two, comma, chose RDM, not for EC title, comma, sack not just caused by poor results, semicolon three, ones, three, first need was a man with guts. Like, I mean, that's, yeah. that, that's, no, this is supposedly the like multi-millionaire owner of like massive business as well as a football club, and I have no idea what he's saying. I was always taught that uh, the use of a semicolon showed intelligence as a writer. That's a load of shit. <laughs> There's a lot of semicolons there, and none of it makes sense. Well, see, the problem is he was probably told the same, and <laughs> just, it's, it's, decides to deploy it wherever his, he fancies. His follow-up here, I didn't buy Villa for business purpose. It's one firm losing money, in inverted commas, firm. I never expected making money from it. Moaning is easier and not louder than action. Moaning is easier and not louder than action. Yes. That sounds like something you'd find in a fortune cookie. (laughs) (laughs) So, but there's plenty of things he's saying here that actually, like, I feel like he's got the, I feel like he's got the straight talking side that's borderline making sense. Okay. He's not quite there yet, and his English isn't his first language. But here's there's a thing where uh, somebody tweets, um, Aston Villa fans have just unfolded a Bruce out banner. Uh, Dr. Tony Jaya left the stadium when Forrest equalised. Is Bruce on borrowed time? And he retweets that with, no more shit rumours. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's kind of refreshing. Like, except he's star, star, star for HIT. But uh, yeah, see, I kind of when I started reading them back then, Kind of thinking like he's making the club a laughing stock, and yeah. he is a little bit. But maybe you hear maybe about in time you get used to this guy. You hear what pe- you like. You often hear people sarcastically saying, "Oh, he's down with the kids," but this guy is like down with the fans. Mm. You know, he's definitely making an effort to be like on the fans' <laughs> level uh, to make success. Is there a better football club owner in England at Twitter? I don't know. Well, Simon Jordan at the moment. Simon I know he's Jordan a former, former chairman, owner, yeah. but I future mean, friend of the show. Yeah, Simon Jordan, <laughs> future friend of the show. Answer our DMs, Simon, for the love of God. <laughs> Simon Jordan really hey, does. John Henry at Liverpool's not bad. The what are they smoking over there at the Emirates after they da- bid forty million and a quid for Luis Suarez? Darren McAnthony is quite active on, oh, on the Twitter McAnthony. machine. Peter Bree's great. Yeah, he, uh, I saw him uh, responding to a fan earlier today. A fan asking to re-sign some striker for Peter Bree, and okay. he was like, "This guy, I think his name was Nichols or something." He's like, "Nichols, the same guy that the fans absolutely hated and all this kind of stuff." Like <laughs> explaining why he won't do that, you know? And that's that's quite a refreshing approach. I mean, imagine like one of the Glazers tweeting about Manchester United or 
like what would they even say like there's uh, I, to go back to the John Henry thing he's an improvement on the previous American ownerships who's is it Foster Gillette George Gillette's son yeah, yeah. once emailed a fan Foster. a Liverpool fan giving out and said blow me fuck face yeah <laughs> I miss Hicks and Gillette. That was a good. That was a good time. Oh, Tom Hicks said running Liverpool was like it's just like running Weedabix. It's the same thing. It's it's I'd say it's easier than that. Run, than running Weedabix. Yeah. I mean, I tell you what, one Weedabix is a much bigger company. Yeah, I I think Weedabix more important at to this, more people at this point though. To be fair, I'd say Weedabix runs itself like it's <laughs> properly established itself in the in the top echelon of breakfast cereals. Whereas <laughs> Liverpool haven't established themselves in the top echelons of football clubs. So just like that was what I was implying. It lob that grenade here and watch, and watch the world burn, Gavin Casey. Tony, Jaya. I was trying to think of a smart ga- uh, smart gag about Weedabix having a stronger molecular structure than the Liverpool back four back on the smart stuff. You've so just done it. Just You've just done it. it anyway. Yeah. Sorry, Mick. So, no, no, I'm just going to... We'll, we'll part the Tony Joya and possibly Aston Villa conversation for the full season unless they go down uh, yeah. on the podcast here. with the He's, at, he's uh, tweeting about his five, ten-year plan. Five to ten-year plan. <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a guy comes and goes, can you not just make it a five-year plan? I'm 73 and I want to see us back. And his response <laughs> was to retweet that and say... 73 in nowadays is very young. Don't worry. <laughs> That's unbelievable. I'm a fan of this guy. I'm a fan of this guy. I mean, we should we should have a segment for him, actually. Yeah. Like the, his, Maybe I'll Tony's, do his tweets every week. Tony, so. Tony Shea's tweets of the week. Why not? Let's wrap. Uh, our thanks to Ladbrokes, as per usual. Next week, it will be Mikey back in the hot seat, I presume. Uh, we'll see. We might not let him back. Yeah. But um, a reminder that you can subscribe and download this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Libsyn, all of those usual podcast providers. But until the next one, take it easy. <laughs>